The first time I got behind the wheel of a car and drove, I was 11 years old. Now, this actually wasn't my idea, it was my dad's idea. We were out in the rural country somewhere and came by a little bit of a dirt patch or dirt hard pan that looked like it was a, kind of a big parking lot type of thing, somebody's property. We didn't really know. I don't think we really cared. He said, would you like to drive? I'm like, yeah, I would like to drive. I don't know what 11-year-old kid probably wouldn't want to drive. I certainly did. I was so excited about that sudden prospect. So we pull over, and he gives me the instructions. He says, you know, gets me in the driver's seat, moves it up, gets my hand on the wheels, shows me the turn signal, tells me how to engage it, turn on the ignition, then engage, then move forward. I'm excited at every little detail that is coming into my mind. Every little instruction is something like, oh, this is so cool. And so we start to move, and he says, make a right turn, and we make a right turn in the dirt. And we go straight and make a left turn. We make a left turn in the dirt. There's no obstacles. There's nothing really that is dangerous or we can hit. So that was probably part of his plan. And I was just, it didn't last very long, but I was super thrilled that I had the opportunity to drive. And, and I remember thinking at the time, like, I, I can't believe that my dad would, would think that I'm old enough or capable enough to do this. And there was a real sense of kind of being trusted with this responsibility. And I think, you know, obviously it stays with me to this day. It was the one and only time in my youth that he actually offered that. I think later on I actually had to get proper certification and a real licensed person to go take me for driver's training. But it was a great start. And I wonder for you, for each of you, where, where's that episode in your life where the, maybe something memorable where you were entrusted with a task or some opportunity and you thought, this is wonderful. Maybe it was a parent that said, would you mind doing this? Here's a responsibility that you have or a teacher or a coach or a youth leader. And out of the blue comes this request and you say, yes. This is cool. This is exciting. This, I can't believe they would actually entrust this to me. Like if they really knew me, they wouldn't do this. But they're doing it. And that's kind of exciting. And, I, and that's not just for us as children. If you're at work, there will be opportunities where people say, would you mind leading this team? Would you mind heading up this project? Would you mind taking over this division? Would you mind being on the board of this nonprofit? There's any number of things, even today, where people are giving us opportunities that we may think, I cannot believe they would entrust me with this. And I speak to that because I think that really captures what underlies Jesus' teaching in the gospel that Cindy just read. We know this is the parable of the shrewd manager. It is the only parable that Luke tells in... Only Luke tells this parable. And, so, and we know that it is about how, what our relationship to be, should be to money and wealth. And it comes with encouragements and it comes with warning. But underlying it all should be this sense of being entrusted 
with the ability to have money, some degree of it, doesn't matter. Jesus isn't talking about amount. He's talking about just having something. And what we do with it is what is on his mind and how we use it and how we think of it. And I think first and foremost, if we're going to understand how this parable works, we need to understand how it works as a sense of a calling to a trust. Much as a trustee operates in our culture today. A trustee is someone who is appointed by a court or a financial institution. And their role is to make sure that the person who benefits from the trust is actually getting the funds or, or the resources that they need. And the trustee is acting on behalf of some authority, a bank or a court or something of that kind. When Jesus comes to tell this parable about, about how we use worldly wealth and about how we use money, there are things that we need to understand. And the first thing is that, or the overarching thing, is that we are really trustees or stewards of what we've been given. And what does that mean? Just to unpack this a little bit for our own renewal for some of us in terms of knowledge and encouragement uh, for many of us in terms of making sure we are on the Lord's path and plan the first thing that occurs to us in this parable is that it's framed in a way to say very clearly that money is not ours. We're likened, he likens his hearers to the shrewd manager. But the manager is someone who literally manages the land for the owner. Think of the owner as a farm owner. He's a farmer or he's a landowner. And he owns this land, but he's got farmers that actually work the land and they're growing orchards, they're growing olives, obviously, they're growing wheat on some of it, and they owe the landowner some degree of rent. But all that is managed by this manager. Except somehow he runs afoul of the owner who goes and tells him that he can no longer manage. The shrewd manager, of course, realizes that having just been given his notice, he has to do something. See, the notice got to him, but it didn't get out to the world. Nobody knows he's been fired yet except him. So he thinks, well, what am I going to do now? I'm too weak to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll ingratiate myself with the debtors to, my, to the landowner, the guy I work for. And I'll do that by giving them a discount. And one, I'll say, take 50% take off what you owe my master. And the other, I'll say, take 20% off of what you owe. And in, that, in Bible times, much like today, there is essentially the value of reciprocity. If you do for them, they must do for you. And he, they don't know that he's been let go. He's going to let them know, you know, in a week or two when the news gets out. But right now, he's feathering his nest. Right now, he's being a shrewd manager and making sure that he can actually have a place to stay and food on the table because they will find out that they actually owe him for the discounts. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and they'll find that out later. So he's, and, and in the parable, the owner commends the manager. And Jesus uses that to tell us that the sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of life by how they use money. And the first thing he wants us to know, as I said, is that the money, the things that we have, the resources and the wealth, do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord. They came from God, and they are to be used for his purposes. We are but stewards. Jesus himself says in John 17, in the upper room discourse, to addressing his heavenly father, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. There's this sense of everything has its origin in God. Or back in Deuteronomy, when 
when Moses is speaking to Israel, who's about to go into the promised land. And he says, he warns them, you may say to yourself, once you're in there and you see how good this is, you see that you've got houses and lands and the climate is great and all that. And Moses warns them and says, you may say to yourself, my, the, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirm his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. God gives us resources. He gives us money. He gives us wealth to confirm his covenant with us, the covenant with Jesus Christ, that we belong to him, the covenant that says he will not let us go, the covenant that says he will always provide for every need, the covenant that says we don't have to worry about tomorrow because the Lord knows what we need. Now, that's hard to appreciate. It's to, to get the idea that money is not ours is so counter to our culture. We, we live in a culture where it is me and mine and ours. And in our culture, we like to keep score of who's got more than the other guy. This little news item just came through. Jeff Bezos has lost his status as the world's second richest person. Dropping to number three is Indian business mogul Gautam Adani rapidly climbs the ranks of the Bloomberg Billionaire Index. See, there's something about money, by, by virtue of its units, it can be counted. And we like to keep score about value, about power, about any number of things by the amount of wealth that people have. But it is not ours. It was never designed to be ours. Money is, is a stewardship. It doesn't belong to us, but as stewards, like the shrewd manager, we are to use it on behalf of our master. But before we get to actually how we do that, the second thing I really want to say about it is, is it not only is it not ours, but Jesus, ever the truthful, loving pastor of our souls, tells us very clearly that money will not last. Money is something that is only of this world. It is necessary to facilitate commerce, transactions, buying and selling. So it is necessary in this time and this place. But in itself, it is temporary. At some point, we, we will be separated from our money, either by death, our own, or some change in fortune or misfortune. Think of refugees. You know, watching the news not too long ago, they interviewed uh, a woman who, I think her apartment had been bombed in Ukraine, and uh, Liam, I think it was, and she just said, all I have are my documents and the clothes on my back. A year ago, she had an apartment, a place she'd lived for decades, with a neighborhood, with a community, with all kinds of things that would be natural, understandable blessings. And here she is now with just her documents and her clothes. Things can change. What we have in this life is always tentative, always temporal. But it was designed to be so. This is why Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves in this life so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So money won't last, but what we can do, or what do we do in this meantime, in this really temporal time? Well, we use it to gain for us eternal dwellings, to gain for us, in other places of Scripture, treasures in heaven, to send it forward, if you think about it that way. Here's what Calvin says in his Institutes, what he talks about wealth. He says, so it's the duty of believers when they have learned that 
This life will shortly pass away like a dream. To take care of those things which they truly enjoy, to be transmitted to where their entire life will be spent, meaning in eternity. Use worldly wealth to gain for yourself friends in heaven. Think of it this way. If you knew you have a great tip from some, your banker calls you up and he says, I got some bad news. Every dollar you own in a week is going to go to zero. It will be completely worthless. You should get out of all of that. And you would ask, what do I do? And continuing this little illustration, if they say, for example, well, you should put it in a different currency. Let's because the queen's on her mind. Let's use the British pound. Okay, you should take every dollar you have, which is going to zero, and you should buy pound sterling, which is going to be 10x when this terrible dollar event happens. And let's assume you found that credible. You would do everything you could to liquidate your every last dollar and buy every last pound that you could get. This is the principle that Jesus is talking about. To take something which is temporal, take something that will not last, take something that is only of this age, and take it. And as Calvin said, send it on ahead. Send it to eternity. Do the things, use your wealth here, use our wealth here to bless people in this life so that as we bless them and we're glorifying God, he is letting that treasure in heaven build. When Jesus talks about treasure in heaven or he talks about uh, true riches, it's kind of vague actually on what that looks like. I mean, I wish it was as quantifiable as bank accounts and things like that, but it's not. What it does mean, however, is that, you know, when Jesus says in Matthew 25, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. There is a sense of reward or a sense of treasures in heaven that is actively going on when we are using our wealth for the things that honor God. So how is it that we use, how do we send these possessions ahead of us? How do we convert what's temporal and will not last into what is eternal and will glorify him? three basic ways that we use our money in Scripture. We use it to care for ourselves and our family. Paul says to believers, if any one of you uh, have people need or people in your own family and you don't take care of them, you're actually, you're like a pagan. This is, you're worse than that. There's a real sense that you, by virtue of being in a family, have some responsibility for those in your family from a resource perspective. So we, we use money to take care of our family. That, that glorifies God. We use money to look after the poor and the needy. John writes, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? When we do that, we don't do that necessarily out of regard to whether they are quote-unquote truly needy. And sometimes our own hearts can be a little bit uh, hard to free up in that regard, particularly if we've worked really hard for the things we have, and we think, ah, hmm, how did you get to that spot? But the poor and the needy are, what, are people that are on God's heart and in his mind. So we care for our family with the resources we, we're given. We're caring for the poor and the needy as well. And the other th- ways that you see money used in Scripture that blesses God is to support the work of the kingdom, support the work of the church. Paul writes to the Corinthians, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but because God loves a cheerful giver. It's amazing when you look at the letters that Paul writes, frankly, how often he's writing about money. 
He's writing appeals. You may think that the appeals that regularly come into your email or to your mailbox are like, you know, I just think that's sort of a corruption of Christianity. Well, it actually has biblical roots. Paul is taking up collection for the church in Jerusalem that was under persecution, that was very limited in its resources and needed support. And he's not ashamed to go to the churches in Macedonia and other places and say, hey, they need your help. And I'm sending some of my guys to go help with the collection so that you won't be embarrassed. It's, it's really actually fairly detailed in places. But to support the work of the kingdom, support the work of the church, look after the poor and needy, take care of one's family. This is how we send the possessions, the things that we have in this life, ahead of us to the next life. This is how we, we show ourselves to be trustworthy as stewards of what God has given us. These are ways that we have opportunities to glorify him. Our Lord loves us so much that he clearly lays out this sacred trust. And it's an opportunity while we have this life and while we have what resources we have to truly glorify him by blessing others. But our Lord also provides a warning, if you will. He provides in our current day and age what we might call a health advisory. You go to any public place these days, you will still find COVID signs and all kinds of warnings and masks and distance. Those haven't changed. Think of those as what they are. Those are health advisories. The Lord also provides us with a health advisory. He says this, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God and mammon. Mammon was another word for wealth or property. It really has a connection with property. But the way it's used here and in other places of Scripture, it's more than just a static concept. It really is a spiritual force. When you think of how Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, part of that was to show him all the kingdoms of the world with all their splendor and with, and with all their riches. And Satan claims an authority over, there, over that and that he can give them to anybody that he wants. John in his first epistle calls this love of the world. The boasting of what we have and what we do. These are things not of God, but these are things that belong to this world, the keeping score. So mammon has its own power. If these are things that really are attracting the Christian and getting us off of the calling that Christ has given us in Scripture, then the, the health warning is for us. And I, I think in this life, that is a constant pressure. And I think even in this area, and even us as Holy Trinity, where compared to the world's, so many people in the world, we have good education. We have, for the most part, good job opportunities or good job prospects. We've been able to provide for our family if we're a certain age or looking for ways to provide for a family that God may give us later on. We have, we're at really the, the top side of that equation. And so maybe this is something particularly for us to be aware of the spiritual power of mammon. We see it in the readings that were given, particularly when Malloy read the passage in Amos, uh, which is stark. I'll just, a few of the verses. Hear, hear, the, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? What are they saying? Enough of these religious holidays. This is, this is taking valuable business time. I am not making a profit for all these festivals I have to do. We have, I'm sure there's modern versions of that. 
And then it's as if Amos is listening to these conversations going on in the houses of these people. Scripture calls them, we could call them greedy, but they're so focused on the prophet. And Amos says, you're skimping on the measure, boosting the price, you're cheating with dishonest scales, all of things which were very much against the law that God had laid down in the Torah. Buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals, selling the sleepings with the wheat. Basically cheating people for the motive of profit to feather your own nest, to be rich because that is just the course setting uh, that you've been put on. This is what Amos is saying to these people. But then hear what the Lord says. This is Amos the prophet. Now the Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. We are entrusted as stewards. What we have, what we've been given, is a trust, a sacred trust. And it is to be used for the way our master, our Lord, our Savior directs us. My hope and my prayer, my sort of self-admonition, if you will, is to say, Lord, would you show me those places where I am getting sidetracked or been sidetracked or, or think of it as just boundaries of my faith. Okay, we have some savings. Is that too much? Is that, what, how, how it, can I be a good steward with that? Am I being a good steward with that? What about those needs that you keep bringing before me? Am I meeting those? With the, is this your calling on me? We, we get more mailers and opportunities that we can probably deal with. But there are, that doesn't mean we should necessarily dismiss them all. But to be always with a posture of openness. To say, Lord, what is it about what you're showing me that I need to respond to? What is it that you're showing me about my wealth that I need to be and the resources you've given me that will glorify you and honor you? Where am I taking a step of faith? Where I'm going to move forward in this commitment and I'm not sure how you're going to meet it, but I know that you will. It is an amazing privilege to be entrusted by our Lord with resources. He does that, that we would have an opportunity to glorify him by blessing other people, people that have, are in greater need than we are. When we do that, we are sending what we will definitely lose to a place where we will never lose it, which is in heaven. And so let me close with a proverb that I learned at an early age. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim forth with new wine. We are but stewards. We see the love of the Lord as we faithfully do that. And he empowers us not only to see that, but to guard us against getting sidetracked into the world's ways. If we would do this faithfully, if we would allow the Spirit to speak to us in the days ahead, to do sort of a, a gut check or look at those health warnings, I think he'll take us into new places in each of our lives where we can be those stewards that he has meant us to be. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.